everyone. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> um, felt like the Lord has been prompting me to speak a little bit more often. One, because I think I've been sitting and resting for a year. And secondly, also to give Ryan some, some rest. But also, because I really do, I feel like the Lord is laying a foundation for what he's doing this year. Um, again, just a little plug. All of these messages are kind of laying a foundation for the things that we're going to talk about even at retreat and for um, what, I don't know, maybe the rest of the tone of the arc forevermore. Who knows? Um, so if you can, um, please open your Bibles to Genesis 3. Yeah. I'm going to pray for us before we start. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you've been here, that I acknowledge again my desperate need for you and our desperate need for you. We cannot hear without your presence. We cannot speak without your unction. I pray that this wouldn't be a message or a sermon, but rather, Father God, this would be an awakening and a moving and an unlocking in the spirit. Change the way we think forevermore and the way that we interact with you forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. I entitled this message, um, Establishing God's God-Mindedness. And so we're going to go back. Um, it's one of my favorite areas to kind of read, actually, is Genesis 3. Um, we have Genesis 1, everything's great, God's saying everything's good, and then we hit Genesis 3. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is the serpent. He's talking to Eve. And the, serp and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. There is so much in this these three verses, like I'm not even, I won't even um, pretend to say that it's going to, this is an exhaustive message, but I will say that some of the things um, in here are things that I believe humanity, even now, still struggle with, and I think that in these days, it's really, really important for us to recognize what these inclinations of the human heart still are. So if we take this and look at this again, I don't know, remember which verse it is exactly, but one of the first things that happened was the serpent comes and he talks to Eve. And he asks her a question, right? He, first he says, did God actually say? And then Eve gives an answer, which we'll talk about later, but one of the things that I felt like that was really interesting was that 
immediately what the serpent does, and he's, he outright lies. And he says, you will not die. Right? God says, you will die. And the serpent comes and he says, you will not. And I feel like it's important to realize from the outset, everything that we as humans come against, there is a truth and there is a lie. And it is so, so important for us to ask God for discernment so that we can recognize it. The very, very beginning, I just want to let us know, the devil lies. Okay, the devil is a liar. It's a fun thing to say, but it's really true. <laughs> right? We don't need to think about him all the time, but we need to realize that whenever we are having thoughts. Our thoughts are either from God, from the devil, or just our own thoughts. And our thoughts have a way. It's going to go one way or another. It's going to agree with God or it's going to agree with the devil. And I think it's really, really important to realize that when our thoughts are not of God, there is a devil liar in there. Okay. All right. So let's continue on with that, right? So how does he actually, what does this statement actually mean? You will not surely die. What he actually is doing is he's tempting Adam and Eve to think carnally, not spiritually, right? Because when God says, you will surely die, is God actually saying they will literally physically die? No. And so the serpent knows that, right? So he's saying, you're not going to die. Like, you're not going to physically die. But Adam and Eve are thinking carnally, naturally, in their flesh. And they're thinking, oh, yeah, you're right. We probably aren't going to physically die. But because they aren't spiritually minded, this is like before there's ever been sin. They're walking every day in the Garden of Eden. There's been no fall. And immediately what the enemy tempts them into is thinking naturally. And I think this is really important because every single day of our life, we have a choice whether we're going to think naturally, carnally, or spiritually, recognizing that when the enemy says you're not going to die, in some ways that's true. You're not going to die physically. I mean, they didn't drop dead physically, but there was a spiritual death. And Adam and Eve, even though they were in a place where they saw they're living as connected spiritually to God as humanly possible at that point in all creation, still weren't able to get that. So how much more do you realize that for us, it might be a struggle for us to get there? So even though I'm saying, hey guys, we're spiritual in nature. The kingdom of God is spiritual in nature. You will be tempted to think naturally all the time. This is one of our first places of realizing that we need to ask God to help us stay spiritually minded. The next thing is, <clears throat> I want to look at Genesis 1, 16 and 17. Let's see what God actually says, right? God, what God said to Eve was, 
and Adam and Eve was, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So a couple points about this. One, God did not say anything about not touching the fruit. Eve remembered it wrong, right? And so she misquotes and misunderstands God from the outset. And the second thing, and I think this is really what kind of struck me, is God was really kind. He said, you can eat of every tree. He's like, I made this for you. I made birds for you. I made this, 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 this. You can eat of every tree. This is the first point. It's about his abundance. It's about everything he's giving. Right? There was no, there's no limitation there, right? He's saying, you, there's so many trees. In fact, there's a tree of life. There's all these things that I'm giving you. But this one, there's 99, 99.9% things that you have access to. But there's one thing you can't. And why can't you? Because it's going to harm you. But what happens in Adam and Eve's heart? They fixate on the one thing they cannot have. How many of us are like that? God is like, He's given us a home. He's given us people who love us. He's given us at least one person who loves us, right? I mean, sometimes, no, I mean, really, like, not, not always. Parents aren't always really great about saying it. And, I mean, there's so many things, right? He's given us, if we can really learn to start to account for all the things he's given us, I think we are already well empowered to have victory over this point. But instead, we live in a society that magnifies criticism, magnifies looking for the one thing that's not right, talking about it constantly. How many people go to work, you have a job. You have a job, you have your bills paid. And everybody there is griping about their boss and griping about the promotion they don't have, griping about this, 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 all the things that aren't coming yet. They don't appreciate me. They don't see my gifts. I don't feel fulfillment. I'm not satisfied. You know, I'm, I'm going to school. Man, you are going to a really good school or any school at all. Do you realize how few people in the world have access to the education that we have access to in this nation? Oh, but blah, blah, blah. The professor's a little bit mumbles. They're not that straightforward, right? I don't know if I really understand. Oh, I don't like this book. Oh, blah, 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 right? And you think about it. We have probably in this nation access to more riches than many people in many places. And yet, what do we spend most of our time talking about? What is coming out of our mouth? Adam and Eve had everything. And what was the enemy able to say? Oh, well, why can't you have that? Let's not think about all of the blessing. Let's focus, fixate on the one thing that you can't have. It's crazy, right? But not ununderstandable just mind-boggling that we all find this still within us. And so I think the, 
Encouragement isn't like to focus on this, like, oh, I'm so horrible, but to recognize that this is a human nature wrestling that we have to continually recognize and ask for grace for. And it's kind of interesting, if you study the book of Revelations, I don't know if this is true because I haven't yet, but I will toss this out there. That some people say that at the end, we will actually have access and that God wasn't actually trying to keep the tree of the knowledge of good and evil away from us. It was just not time. That's what some people say. And so if that was the case, it's really, really even more interesting because it's really our impatience and our lack of trust that was like, no, I want it right now. And I think that is also an interesting point to kind of keep in mind. And then I'd like to kind of go down a little bit to um, the end of that passage where it says that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. The temptation here was that, and then I think there's also a place where it says like Eve saw that it was good because she could be like God and know good and evil. And one of the things I feel like right now in these days and in these last days that we see, especially in places that exalt intelligence and rationale and logic, is that we are always trying to figure out what is right and wrong, good and evil. This was not originally intended to be something that we wrestled with. We were intended to have God tell us Think about that. How much less stress there would be if we weren't trying to constantly figure out right and wrong. Is this okay? Is this not okay? How, I don't know about you guys, but how much of our thought life is constantly hampered by not knowing, God, is this okay? Is that okay? Is this right? Is that right? And knowing that when we choose the things that aren't right, there probably are natural consequences for those things. These weren't naturally the questions and the problems that God wanted us to have, except now we have become people. One of the things that Adam and Eve wrestled with and wanted more than anything else was to become wise in their own eyes. And this is a generation that I really personally feel is so enamored with our own ideas of right and wrong and wisdom. And in fact, this is at the heart, I believe, of what I would call humanism. Humanism, for those of you who don't know, is really the idea that humans are at the center of everything. That we are meant to make these kinds of determinations. And in these last days, the temptation to take things into our own hands is going to become even greater Proverbs 3, 5 to 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your, straight, your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. 
And what's interesting is it continues and says, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. What this leads me to think is that a lot of our sickness, our ailment, our exhaustion, you know, I don't know how many times I talk to people, and people are always talking about how exhausted they are, how busy we are, what's occupying, what's making us anxious constantly. How much, if you ask people who are in the health profession, how many sicknesses are tied to stress and anxiety? And so much of that is because we really do want to find wisdom apart from the Lord. And we're constantly asking this question, that question, that question, that question. First Corinthians 3.18 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. Because the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. Because it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and that they are futile. Intrinsic in this is, a, is I would say the subtext in this is humility. Right? Like, it's not saying that there is no wisdom to be had, right? And in fact, the Bible talks a lot about pursuing wisdom, but he talks about how do you get wisdom. And the word is really clear that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And I think this is really important because what the fear of the Lord means is that every thought comes back to, I'm going to stand before God with this thought action and this thought. It's not meant to make, and it's kind of funny because we've been reading um, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you guys do or do not know, there's this character named Aslan, and he's uh, a lion. And there's different reactions to Aslan, right? And Aslan is this, in, in where we are in the story, we're in the middle somewhere. Like, winter has come, but there's no Christmas, right? And um, there's this, so um, people were talking about Aslan is on the move. And there's these four children. And one of the children had met a witch who kind of embodies and symbolizes Satan. And then the other children had met friends and people who are sensitive to the Lord, right? That's what they represent. And when they mentioned the name of Aslan, there was two separate reactions. One, the little boy who had met the witch, he trembled and he was uncomfortable and a little bit scared. And then there was this little girl who was pure in heart and the other children who hadn't even met him, but they said for some reason when they even mentioned the name of Aslan, there was a warmth and it smelled like cookies and a refreshment, right? It's a children. <laughs> and there was something about it that was terribly wonderful yet really mysterious but there was a real comfort but there and they asked is Aslan safe and then they're like but of course not he's not safe but he's Aslan right like there it's almost like there is no words and when you think about the presence of God and who he is it's the same thing it's like when they ask him what is his name I am 
There is no word. There are no words to explain the presence of God. But you know when your heart is inclined towards him, you hear Jesus. And you're like, that is comfort to my soul. There is a home about it. There's something like a refuge. It's peace to my soul. But to those who do not know him, who, who have some kind of something with him, you say Jesus, and they want, they get mad. They get upset. How dare you tell me that blah, 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 blah. How can there only be one religion one way? How can there only be one truth? You're so narrow-minded. And so when we talk about the fear of the Lord begin, be, becoming the beginning of where wisdom begins, right? We're talking about an understanding of standing in the presence accountable to Almighty God. It's not meant to be scary, but it is meant to be awe-inspiring. A good checking of our hearts and our souls. And so when we're thinking about how do we really account for how we're going to live, make our choices with our schooling, our jobs, our ministry, our everything. How, when I start my day, because what wisdom is, is the correct application of right and wrong, right? You can know what's right and wrong, but if you don't have wisdom, you don't know how to apply it. Right? And how do we know how to apply it? We're checking with the Lord. When I see you, how are you going to feel about this? And does the world do that? And are we tempted to do things like the world? Or are we going to run that? Is that going to be our metric? So the next thing I want to um, talk about uh, still in, in, the, in Genesis is this next point, that Adam and Eve wanted to depend on themselves and not the Lord. They wanted to be strong without God. In verse 5 it says, For God, in, yeah, I think it's three, uh, chapter, Genesis 3, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. We live in a world right now that exalts independence and strength. Even as leaders and pastors, there's a very fine line we, we, we have to live and we tread. You got to be weak enough to make people think that you're weak, but strong enough to be able to keep things together so that people still respect you. That is a really, really difficult line to lead because really... When the, when the Bible talks about, really, our strength is when God can shine through us and people can see God. But do you know what it requires to be a person that actually looks like that? It means that people kind of have to know that you are very inarticulate unless he shows up. It means that without him, things don't get done. Apart from him, you can do nothing. 
in him you can do everything. But there's this constant awareness. It is a very troubling tension to live in, actually. Are we ready? Do we want that? Do we really want God to be seen through us? Or do we still want credit? And to be accoladed and told, wow, you did such a great job. You're such a godly man and woman. You're so this, that. You're strong. You're smart. You're so competent. Wow, you have so many gifts. Or are we actually ready to say, God, I really do want when people see me, I want people to see Jesus. There's this lie, I think, now that if we're weak, we're going to be a bad witness. But the reality is, if we are witnessing our strength to people, we are teaching them that they cannot be weak and be themselves, and we limit who gets to enter the kingdom of God, because really the kingdom of God is for those who are willing to be weak, willing to be seen, poor in spirit. And so I think Part of the problem that we've had in this nation is that we have for too long relied upon strength as the thing to attract people to the kingdom of God and not trusted God himself to be able to move through broken humanity. When we really look at the injustices done by the church, I am shocked that anyone's a Christian. Is it not actually the greatest witness that despite what we have done, as a people who say we love Jesus, that anyone has found him, that is the greatest witness that God is real. It is that although we have been hypocrites, although we have oppressed, although we have totally failed as leaders and have shown people nothing, that people are badly witnessing that yet it doesn't matter to God. He has been able to show his faith as victorious, as the one that people can count on. Then we know that God is real. God is not worried about our imperfections and our weaknesses. In fact, he's saying, who is willing to allow my face to really shine? I'm just going to read this because this is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Because all of this is, Jesus is perfect theology, right? And Jesus embodies this. It says in Philippians 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of his servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus was walking on earth, people would come to him and say, good, good teacher. And he says, no, no one's good except God alone. Even he, of all people, deserves a little bit of praise. Hey, you're a good teacher. And even there, and I'm not teaching us to be falsely humble, but just to recognize, like, when there's a real, like, even there he was saying, no, I defer all of that to God. I'm not going to take any credit. And even when you guys are asking me to prove myself, I'm not going to. But who has more right than Jesus? This isn't a statement about what you have a right to. This is a statement about understanding and giving, allowing all the parts of our life to give God glory. We say that, but we are so, I mean, I am guilty. I have been so, ah, the vanity of the human heart. And I think we can say that it's okay because it's common, but at the same time, just because it's common doesn't make it okay. And so I want to talk a little bit about God's ways because I think we think we understand God's ways, but in this next season, as I hope, I want to see a people that are really, really surrendered and wanting to live life according to his ways. But here's the thing. When God starts doing stuff according to his ways, humans naturally get offended. And so one of the big things on my heart is that we learn how to deal with offenses. When we are offended by the body of Christ and when we are offended really ultimately by God. Because Adam and Eve, who were they offended by? They were offended that God was keeping some, thinking that God was keeping something from them. Our God is super backwards. Okay? He says crazy things. Like the kingdom of God belongs to children. In front of all these people who had been studying, think about this. I've heard this actually by a lot of people. Man, I have given, I've done this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this for God. I've served in this, 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 this way. You know, blah, blah, blah. And, and God says, hey, the kingdom of God belongs to those just as these, these children who don't have deep scholarly understanding, who just come. Having kids is like crazy mind-boggling, right? Like every night we, I, we put down McKenna and Kylie. And Kylie, especially because she's a little bit more childlike. McKenna, if you guys don't know, is like, like an old lady <laughs> in the body of a six-year-old, right? But Kylie's like a little kid. And I don't know if it's, uh, she's ever going to outgrow it. And she ju we just say, I ask her sometimes, I'm like, <laughs> I'm fishing, okay. So who do you love, baby? And she goes, Jesus. I'm like, what about mommy? But Jesus first. Oh. And I'm just like, okay, that's a good answer. <laughs> but it's so simple, right? It's so simple. And sometimes she'll, she'll be like, if Jesus is mad, he's never mad at me. He's mad for me. 
And I'm like, how did you get that? None of us even get that. <laughs> we don't even get that. The first people to see Jesus after he, when he comes back to life are women. It wasn't the people, the disciples who stayed by his side, who left their families, who, you know, were under scrutiny as he was going to the cross. Who did he let see him? The people that even today are a really oppressed group of people, women, globally are probably the least seen besides children, right? And he says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are kids, who are women, who have no legal voice. These are the people I'm going to show myself to when I am in, I am coming back. And in James 1, he says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? We think that there's such an injustice because there's poverty. But guess what? When God sees it, he's like, those people? Have I not chosen those people to inherit the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of God? He's like, no, there is full justice that is going to happen. And don't you measure things by your earthly eyes. In fact, it's harder for someone who has a whole lot, rich men, to get to heaven. Like a camel through the eye of a needle. So don't you worry. My justice, my system has a sense. The other way that God works is things are based on the spiritual. There is a real active spiritual realm. There are angels, there are demons. And we can't solve the earth's problems through just putting our hands at work. We have to put our hands at work. We have to do things. We don't just not do, just sit in church and pray and sing. But doing things without recognizing that everything is a spiritual battle first is toilsome. Think about this. In Joshua 6, God talks about the people of God taking down the walls of Jericho. Right? They're at physical war. God has given them land and a place to take, to take over. And he says to them, I don't want you actually going in there with your swords and doing all this stuff. What does he tell them to do? He tells them, he gives them a prophetic act. He says, go for six days and just march around this thing. I mean, how ridiculous is this, really? Like, it's great. You're reading this. You're like, this is a great Bible story. The, you know, the kids sing. Joshua fought the, fought the battle, battle of Jericho, right? And then the walls came tumbling down. Do you realize how weird this actually is? This is a general of an army. And he says, well, actually, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to go wander around. And then on the sixth day, 
we're just going to shout really loud. <laughs> That's weird. But the Bible talks about how in that shouting, all of a sudden, the thunderous sound of the people who are submitting to the general and saying, even if I don't understand this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to shout. And guess what? That act signified something in the spiritual realm and the physical walls fell. So I would venture to say there's a lot of problems in our earth today that we are trying to solve through physical means that have to first be tackled spiritually. Just another example, if you want, for your reference. Second Chronicles 20, 22. Talk about the king of Jehoshaphat. They're also at war. And what God told them to do was go praise, worship, sing. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who came against Judah so that they were routed. A lot of people talk about how it's not enough to just pray and worship. But if our worship really is warfare, because it is declaring truth that God is bigger than us, what real praise should be is a declaration of the identity, power, victory, and presence of who Christ, who God is. And when we do that, what do we do? We are saying to the devil, you are a liar. We do not need to depend on our own strength. In fact, things are not founded and based here on earth, but rather from heaven and through our connection and God's effort and work. That's what we're doing when we worship. That is a very powerful thing. It is not something passive. I think if we feel like our prayers and our worship are passive, we have been buying into a lie from the enemy because who else wants to stop us from worshiping and praying but Satan himself? If he can make all the people of God think prayer and worship are useless, let's just have them go and do everything and try to conquer everything through their own hands. How exhausting is that? How much do we have to do in order to even mirror a small act of the Spirit of God coming and destroying something like injustice? Ephesians 6 12 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There is a very active, very real way that all of earth is under, let's just say. It's not a great word, but that everything that we see here will last for about this long. But they are impacted by the things that are happening in the, in the spiritual realm. And it is to our greatest, um, we'll be better. 
and we will be empowered if we know how that stuff works. I remember um, when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, I was in college, and at that time, I was a very different person than I am now. Back then, I was somebody who was pretty disconnected from my emotions, even though I had a lot of them. And um, I was very, I loved the intellect. I still love reading. I loved things that made sense. And, um, and, is, uh, and used to be someone who I would never, I, you wouldn't find me drinking because I really valued self-control. And this is not because I was a Christian. It was because I just didn't like to be out of control. And I remember we were just kind of gathering together. Nobody had told us what it looked like when the presence of God came. So I didn't have any boxes. And, <clears throat> and when um, they prayed for me, they laid hands on me. Nobody explained what it was going to look like. But immediately, for six hours, I was like smashed on the floor. I could not m move at all. I didn't know what tongues were, and I, was, I seriously had visions of almost every single continent on earth and people praying in tongues, worshiping Jesus, and saw the city of Berkeley and had all these super, super intense, and it terrified me because it was the first time my body was not necessarily in control, but I could have probably stopped it if I asked because that God is really kind, but it was so heavy, the presence of God. I was shaking uncontrollably like in awe that the spiritual realm could intercept our physical realm in such a real way that nothing else was real. And I really want to challenge us that our God actually really wants to be that real for us. He really wants us to think, to lift up our heads, and to consider the way that he does things and not be quick to throw things out there are so many ways that God wants to talk to us that, yes, he wants to use our mind. Yes, he wants to make sense. But sometimes that's not really, he's not that interested in that. He is looking for people who are like, you know what, however you want, God. However, whatever, do it. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you guys in dreams. But we're so used to rationalizing our dreams away. Maybe there's something he's saying. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> Another way that God moves is really he does offensive things. I'd like to talk about Mary for a little while think about this, right? She's engaged. She's a teenager. And she ends up pregnant. Super scandalous. Super, super scandalous, right? Because if you're the guy, you're like, what? You got pregnant by yourself? <laughs> that doesn't happen, right? <laughs> so how this, right? So you have to think about this. This is crazy. How did my fiance end up pregnant? Poor Mary is like, oh, I don't know how this happened. <laughs> right? How do you explain? No, it really did just happen. I did get pregnant all by myself. How offensive, how scandalous. I think a lot of times we think, man, why would God do something like that? Why would he move that way? Doesn't he care about 
how I look to people? And the truth is, yes and no. He does care about you, but really at the same time, he doesn't necessarily feel the need or the compulsion to make sense to you or to the people around you. And all that can, all we can do is say, and Mary was amazing because she's like, okay, be it to me and, you know, let it be how you want it to be. Okay. And then I also want to talk a little bit about Jesus when he kind of purposely offended the whole entire crowd of people who came to him, right? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is John 6, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And whoever feeds on my flesh, feed on my flesh, people, and drinks my blood, that person abides in me and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, again, very strange wording, he will also live because of me. And then when the disciples heard it, they said, this is hard. Who's going to be able to hear this? And, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? And a little bit later after that, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And immediately after, it also says, After this, some of his, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I want to talk a little bit about this. I think... We think that God is trying to hold on to all of us so tightly, worried to not offend us, not wanting anyone to fall away. Yes, this is true. The Bible, in 1 Timothy, it does say he wishes that all were saved. But one other thing about God is he is not trying to change who he is to cater to our sensitivities. To the extent that he is able to stay in complete consistency with his character, with the revealed word of God, he will do that. But he is not ever, ever going to change something so that we feel good. If we don't feel good or like something, there is an appropriate response and an inappropriate response. And in fact, Every place where we are out of alignment with truth, we have the potential and probably will be offended. So when there is an offense that comes up, it is actually the grace and goodness and kindness of the Lord to bring that up. It is not a punishment. It is not necessarily a discipline. It is the kindness of God to say, hey, look, there is an area in your heart that clearly is out of alignment because if there is a place that can be offended, it will be offended. Jesus is offensive. If you have never been offended by God, you're not walking closely enough with him because he is very interested in every area of our hearts that is out of alignment because he wants to bring freedom. Every place that's out of alignment is a place that eventually leads to death. 
I remember, some of you guys know this, Ryan and I were engaged to be married, and we had about a month until our wedding. And um, we had sent out invitations, and man, it was a really rough year for me. And then the Lord spoke and told Ryan, I, you need to call this wedding off. We didn't have this part of the story, knowing that we would end up being married. He just said, just call it off indefinitely. And so he had to come and say to me, I know that you've sent invitations out. I know that we've invited everyone already. I know that we've had plans. I know that this year has been really rough and that this is probably the one thing that you've been looking forward to this whole year. But we can't do this. There was plenty of opportunity to be offended. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to be really honest. It was like the first time I've ever almost physically felt my heart shatter. I almost could hear the pieces breaking. And I remember seeing a picture in my mind that there was like a castle in the sky and the thing crumbled to sand right before my eyes. And I had a choice at that point. God, what am I going to do? I can either embrace that there's a reason why this happened or I can get upset with you. And I really feel like the Lord gave me a grace to say, okay, I trust you. So I'm going to take this and I'm going to run. And I know there was something in my heart that made too much of this wedding. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to go spend time with you. I'm going to go find out what you were doing. And those next three months where I didn't know if we were going to get married or not get married, all I did was seek the Lord. And it is the best time that I'd ever had with the Lord short of maybe this last year. And I remember the Lord saying, had you not had this time, you would have relied on Ryan and he would have been your everything. But now I can be your everything. And Ryan is your partner, but not your God. Anything that has the potential to make you so upset with God that you could fall away has too important of a place in your heart. If you can get offended that something did not pan out so much that you could potentially walk away because of that offense, means you're holding on to it too much. I really want us to be a people that has relinquished all of our false dependencies. This world and the enemy wants us to rely on our own human wisdom and forget that we are a spiritual being first. One of the most common things that you'll see, one of the things I see the Lord doing all the time is moving each and every one of us to greater dependence on him. And the reason I'm preaching this is because I really feel like in the last days there's going to be more and more people tempted to fall away. And the door and the gateway to falling away is a fence that is not dealt with.
Be aware where our human earthly wisdom becomes a limitation to how we think God wants to move. We oftentimes think God wouldn't do it that way. There's nothing God can't do. Look at what he did to Job. We can be offended by the story of Job or we can really say, God, I don't get this. It is offensive, but there is a reason why this book is in there. And so tell me why you would allow something like that to happen. What does this reveal about you and what I, where my heart needs to be that this is in there? So when we are offended, which I hope all of us get to at some point, because that is a good thing, what do we want to do? A couple of pieces that have to be in place. If you want, write this down. I really want us to know this, okay? One, and I don't mean this in a, like, oppressive, like, uh, way, but God is always right. It's not that he doesn't care what you think, but when we approach him with our offense, it is important to start at that point. He probably didn't make a mistake. If you're mad, there's something going on in your heart, probably not his. No, really. I don't. (laughs) He made this world so good, by definition, is defined by him. We are so used to looking at experience to define what is good, right, and wrong. But like I said in the very beginning, that was not something that we were initially meant to be determining. So allow him to make that determination. And the other thing I wanted to say is realize that he wants to answer. I was reading, and I've been kind of camping out in the book of Ezekiel lately. And God is talking about all these judgments that he is, like, putting upon the people of Israel. And they are just this rebellious bunch of people. And they are killing each other, and they're violent, and they're eating each other. I mean, this is crazy stuff, right? Like, level of sin. And God is, like, having to exact judgment and but one of the one of the beautiful things that he says in this is do I have pleasure in the death of the wicked don't you think that rather that I the Lord would rather he turn away from this and live and he said for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone so turn to me so you can live Even in the midst of what we oftentimes differentiate, like the Old Testament is this wrathful, scary God, and the New Testament is Jesus coming, and he's all soft and cuddly. Really, it's the same God. He's, even in the midst of that, he's like, I don't want to do this at all. I don't take any pleasure in this. In fact, you realize that it hurts me more than anyone else to have to do this. But rather, what I want is for you to turn to me. I want you to say, wow, God, there's something in my heart that's really offended by you. And I don't understand what's going on. And then I want to address the fear that there's something that you did. Maybe you did something. You probably did. 
And I don't mean this in a condemnatory way. If we have a hard time hearing from God, it's usually not because he has done something. It's because something in our heart is a blockage, and he wants to tell us what that blockage is. In the place of God's silence, I think it's usually either he's doing it intentionally because there are wonderful mysteries for you to find, right? The Bible's really clear that God hides things so that we could discover them. But sometimes there really is sin. Sometimes there really is something that we think about him that makes it hard for us to hear. We don't have to feel bad about it. It's pretty much true about 100% of all humans. <laughs> it's okay. Embrace it so that the enemy can stop throwing that at you so that you stop. It keeps you from going to Jesus. Just be like, okay, I probably am thinking something that's not right. <laughs> what is it? I probably learned something somewhere. Maybe someone taught me. And yeah, we can be mad at that person who taught us to me, but really it doesn't even matter at that point. It's still the fact that you're having a hard time with the Lord and can't hear about this particular issue. And he's like, because I put the Holy Spirit in you, you now can have this conversation with me, and I want to, and actually I'm really interested in this going away. I want to be close to you more than you think you want to be close to me. You're stressed out because you think I'm far away, but really, do you see, you're like, I'm working really hard. You're like one thread. And he's like, I've surrounded you with the ways that I am chasing after you. So I want this. But the truth is, if you read the Old Testament, there are times when the Lord had turned his ears away. But every single moment in time, it was because there was a great amount of sin. And so there's somewhere, something, that God wants to bring revelation and understanding and peace and freedom to. And then I want to kind of just talk a little bit about this. This is pretty much my last point. One of the things that's really important is not to accuse God. We can be honest. In fact, he craves our authenticity and our honesty. This is not a license to rail on God. Okay? I understand there's this thing these days where we're like, it's okay to be angry at God. I want to rephrase that. It's okay to feel anger and not understand why God does something. It is not actually okay to stay in that place and accuse God angrily. In Ezekiel 8, the Lord is talking, and he's, he outlines a bunch of offenses, right? Like, they kill these people, they do all these things. And he says, really, though, what I have a problem with is the fact that they said, the Lord does not see us. They believe this lie that God doesn't see. What he has a problem with is they believe that the Lord has forsaken the land and has forsaken us. He says, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of blood, and the city is full of injustice. 
What I have a problem with is the fact that they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. This is the thing that hurts his heart. When we say, God, you don't care. In fact, that was the thing that angered him. How many times have we said in our heart, God, you don't really care about me. And then we say, but would you answer these prayers? How would you feel if someone came up to you and said, I really need your help, but I actually think you're a jerk? No, seriously, right? There's nowhere else to go because I need your help, but actually don't think you're going to help me. I don't believe that what you're going to say is true, but will you still help me anyway? We talk to God like that all the time. We're asking, we say, we need your help, God. We need you, we need you, we need you. But actually, I don't actually think you have an answer. Actually think you're a terrible person, you're a jerk. What kind of request is that? (laughs) You can say, I feel this. (laughs) I know it's not true, but help me understand why this isn't true. Part of the reason I want to take all this time is because, like I said, I really want us to be a people that become unoffendable. The word says, blessed are those who are not offended. Because the Lord works in ways that are so different than ours, and because there has been so much that has happened to us, when he starts to move, we will be tempted by the devil consistently to question what he said to us. And we need to remember he is for us. He's the only one in all of eternity that while we were sinners, while we were nailing him to a cross, still said, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's the only one who's like, I am going to chase after this person, this bride, with all that I have. And I see that there is an image of me in her. And I'm going to marry her one day when she is spotless. And I'm going to do everything from now till I come back for her. Nobody else. The Bible says no one else would even do that for someone who was a good person or a sinner. But Jesus did it for us. And so we have to recognize when there is a lie trying to rob that from us and keep us for becoming not only his bride, but those that, we're, that are helping to go seek and search and save the lost. It is important that we get this so that we do not become liabilities in this journey and this mission till, till we get to eternity. So I'd love to invite the worship team up. And I want to invite us into a place where we can do some business with the Lord. If there, is, there have been places where there has been self-reliance, there have been places where we have accused Jesus, where we haven't understood his heart towards us, or there's any place where you feel like the Lord may want to speak to you, please, we want to invite you to do some business with the Lord and um, come get prayer. And... Um, If this message has resounded for you in some way, shape, or form, would you please just stand up and let's pray together. If this resounded for you in some way, please put your hand on your heart.
Jesus, we repent. Holy God, for the ways that our hearts often drift away and agree with the enemy so easily. We ask you, Father God, that you would implant in us a radar towards heaven, towards truth. Set us free to live according to your truth and to the kingdom and your ways, O God. May we be a people in these last days who know the voice of our God and know the rhythm of his ways and his presence. A sensitivity to who you are that we would know when you're in the room. Let us not be easily shaken by the lies of the world and the enemy who try to condemn your person, your character, and slander you constantly. May we be the greatest defenders of you and your cause, even though you don't need us to defend you. But let us know what is true. Let us be people who are set afire by your truth. We're so sorry, Father God, for the ways that we depend on ourselves. We know that this goes back so far. Teach us to rely on you and your presence for wisdom and not ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.